Amen. Thanks, Ken. Thanks for leading us out in prayer. And I know as, uh, as Christian of, Christians, oftentimes our uh, last response to hard situations is prayer. And and uh, I just appreciate Ken leading out in that. Um, I know many of you have uh, students returning. Some of you are teachers who are returning back to schools. And, uh, and there tends to be an anxiety that comes with that. And uh, we're experiencing even in our home. And so um, to go before the Lord before it, <coughs> it happens, um, I think, is, is what we're supposed to do in Christ. And so um, if that is you, again, you know, just be sure and allow our prayer team to know what, what's going on with your family. Write that down and allow us as a church to pray over you in your specific situation, uh, especially if it has to do with going back to school. And, uh, but there may be something else as well. Uh, we're going to be in Romans 4 in just a minute. So if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible, if you don't have one, uh, there is one uh, underneath your seat or around you, so uh, feel free to grab one of the black Bibles that uh, we provide. Um, and we've had a great summer, and uh, life groups uh, kick back off this weekend. We're getting ready to get back into the fall semester, but what a great summer we've had as a church. Um, the, uh, the preaching uh, has been fantastic, and I can say that because um, I haven't done much of it. Uh, going all the way back to July, uh, Cameron Glass, who oversees our kids' ministry and our life groups' ministry and young adults' ministry, uh, preached in July. Followed that up with Brian Lamb, who oversees nursery ministry and youth ministry and helps with young adult ministry. Uh, both did a fantastic job preaching. I was able to listen to both their sermons online, but I heard the feedback from you and how God used uh, them on those days. And then last week, uh, Jeff Sanders preached. Uh, Jeff leads our, uh, our uh, missions efforts here as a church. And did a fantastic job as well. And so I've just been blessed to, uh, to be able to share that with them and then to be blessed back. I know you have as well. We've had a great, great summer. Uh, we're ready to roll back into our normal Wednesday night schedule and everything that, uh, that, and that, that means. Life groups, uh, men's and women's ministry, all those sorts of things. But man, it's been a great summer. Uh, we're going to be in Romans 4. And so uh, let's get ready to get started there. We're going to continue on in this Romans series. Uh, touching down at key spots through the book of Romans. And uh, so today we're going to cover uh, most of four, verses 1 through probably around 17 is where we're going to land today. And, uh, and as we start, I just one of the things that um, as I was this week praying before the Lord, wrestling through this particular scripture in preparation for this morning, one of the things that, that came to mind personally was my own struggle uh, in, the, in the, uh, wrestling through the idea that to be a Christian is less about being a religion and more about being a relationship. And some of you have probably heard that before, but even as a young believer growing up in a, in a, in a, uh, in a country church, a rural setting, uh, kind of a good old boy setting out in western Parker County, um, while the gospel was preached and grace was offered by faith, oftentimes the system of the church, though, uh, perpetuated something different, that to be a Christian was about works, and if God was going to be happy with you, you had to earn his favor, you had, to dis- you had to put on a display for him, you had to impress God, and so that even affected the way I spent time with the Lord, and I'll never uh, forget early on, I was uh, in youth ministry, and I was taught about having a quiet time. And the way I was taught about having the quiet time was that it was something to check off my list every every day to make sure that I checked it off my list every day. And if I didn't check it off every day, God was going to be angry with me, disappointed in me. And so the next day, if I decided to have a quiet time, spend time with the Lord, I needed to come in with my, with my tail tucked and my head down, and, and, and I needed to display to the Lord that I was truly, truly repentant, or he wouldn't show up for the next quiet time. Now, 
Some of you grew up in similar experiences, okay? Those of you who didn't, praise God. But so even this idea that God wanted to have a relationship with me was something I had to check off. It was a work I had to do or God would no longer be impressed with me. And I'll never forget uh, in one of my quiet times, uh, reading through the Gospel of John, uh, ending chapter 7, rolling into chapter 8, I read about a woman who was caught in adultery and she was drug out in front of uh, the, the public and the religious leaders were there. Uh, ready to throw stones at her. And Jesus says, he who has no sin, let him throw the first stone. And, and they all walked away, dropped their stones and walked away. And he asked the lady, where are your accusers? And she said, they've all gone. And, and he said to her, well, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And I remember reading that in a quiet time, realizing that if Jesus was going to not condemn this woman for adultery, then, then, he, then surely I could... Right? I could have a quiet time and I could come into my quiet time under that same pretense of grace that the, that the Lord would allow me back into his presence without having to earn it all over again. That I didn't have to walk in, in this, this, this era of condemnation if I forgot to check something off my to-do list for the Lord. Well, Romans 4 is going to invite us into this conversation to remind us once again of where our righteousness comes from and how we impress the Lord. We're going to walk through some things starting in verse 1, if you'll read along with me. Starting in verse 1, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham? So Paul is again working through this letter with these questions that he asks, and then he comes back and answers them. Last week started very similar in, in, in this. Romans 3 starts with, what is to be gained by being a Jew? So now Paul is bringing up Abraham, the father of the Jews, uh, the one who is the icon of righteousness in Judaism, he's bringing up Abraham to say, what then was gained by Abraham? Our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? So he's asking this question. What does the Old Testament say about Abraham? He answers the question, Abraham believed God and it was, a, it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 4, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. We'll stop there for just a minute. So what Paul is bringing up, this, this rhetorical questions and asking this, was it, was it Abraham's work that, that impressed God, that God might come to him and say, Abraham, I need you. I need you on my team. I see you're a hard worker. I feel like if, if you were on my team, I could really get this movement off the ground. So Abraham, I need you. Is that what, is that what happened? Then he answers the question, no. It was simply because Abraham believed God that God called and used Abraham and considered him as righteous. Now, when we think about the, the, what the word righteous means, just to lay this out foundationally, two things come to mind. The word righteous, for me, uh, it's helpful for me to think in these terms. It's right relationship with God. Okay. Now, it implies more than that, but first and foremost, my righteousness puts me in right relationship with God, 
as opposed to being in broken relationship with God. I'm in right relationship with God. I'm able to stand into his, in his presence, enter into his throne room of grace with boldness day after day. If I miss something on the list, I still get to enter in. Now, what is also implied by that is there's a sense of holiness of being right, which is quite the opposite of my works. If you look at my life just based on works and you line up all the things I've done right compared to all the things I've done wrong, I come out wrong at the end of every day based on my own strength and effort. So it also means in this right relationship with God, somehow when he looks at me, he accepts me. And he doesn't keep me at arm's distance because of all the things I've done wrong. I'm now right in front of a holy God. And so the first thing that Paul brings up in asking this question, was it Abraham's work that put him right before God? And then he answers the question and says, no. It was because he believed God that he was considered righteous before God. Now he's going to turn to King David as an example of this, starting in verse 6. Just as David... King David, also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from work. So it says if Paul stops and says, tell you what, let me use David as an example here. Okay, uh, David was known as a fierce worshiper for the Lord. He was also known as a fierce sinner before the Lord. He had a lot of things on the, the right side of the column that he did right. He unashamedly Worship before the Lord, not caring what anybody thought of him, right? As our example of what it means to truly love and have affection for the Lord. And at the same, same time, on the, the wrong side of the list, uh, King David, instead of going off to war and leading his men, sent all the men off to war, then went up on his rooftop and spotted a, a girl who was attractive to him, sent for her, to come into his palace, took advantage of her, gets her pregnant. This is on the wrong side of the column, right? All the reasons why David didn't deserve to be in the presence of the Lord. Then, after an attempt to cover up the sin that didn't work, he committed more sin by sending orders to have the husband of this woman killed in battle in order to cover up the whole thing. Now, now God busts him on this. Uh, through, through a good friend, he exposes the sin. But what we're about to read, listen to David's words as he talks about what it truly means to be blessed by the Lord. Uh, we're going to get a quote from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2 here in Romans. So here's what Paul writes next. He reminds us of Psalm 32. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, apart from the right and wrong list. Verse 7. Blessed are those whose Lawless deeds are forgiven. If there was ever anybody in the scriptures who was an authority to be able to talk about what a blessing it is to be forgiven, David surely made the list. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. This was a man who tried to cover his own sins then experience the forgiveness of the Lord and can say wholeheartedly, he can sing it in a song. It is a blessing to have your sins covered by God. It is a burden to have to try to cover them up yourself. 
but it's a blessing to have your sins covered by the Lord. In verse 8, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So David's given as an example to illustrate what's hap- what happened for Abraham in that instead of Abraham's sins being counted against him, he was counted as righteous. And David would say to us, you want to know what blessing truly is? This is, this is key for a generation right now, especially the, the church culture we're in, that we throw that word around lightly, don't we? Oh, it would be such a blessing if the line at the restaurant were short today. Be such a blessing, right? If there, I'm in such a hurry. It's such a blessing if I could park close to Walmart today and just get in and get out. And so we speak of blessing so flippantly oftentimes in our culture. And David says, you want to know what a blessing is? It's first to know what it means to be so burdened and weighted down by sin that everything you see in the world is tainted by death. If you go listen to David's songs where he laments and out of deep depression, writes about what he, how he's seen the world in the midst of the weight of the burden of sin. You want to know what true blessing is? Here's blessing. Blessing is when the Lord doesn't count your sins against you. That's what blessing is. That challenges me. When we sit down with our children to thank God for our blessings, right, that we don't stop at the surface level things, that we don't just ask for what would be maybe service level or flippant blessings, but we truly go for before the Lord and thank the Lord that he doesn't count our sins against us. Blessed are those who lawless, whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So the question was, what has Abraham gained? That's Paul's answer. His sins weren't counted against him. Instead, he was counted as righteous. His sins and his deeds weren't counted against him. Here's the first first of your notes. God is not impressed with my work for him or the status of my position. The idea of works here is, is an idea of labor, but even the idea of a position of employment. Okay, And so I think so oftentimes in the church, we're tempted to get busy for God when we feel the weight of the burden, we feel, feel maybe the guilt or the shame that, that comes with sin, rather than bringing that before the Lord and setting it down and allowing the blood of Jesus to cover it, instead of that, oftentimes, we go into work mode. We go into, I've got to make up for this mode. I'm going to show up extra early for my volunteer position. Or maybe if I have a position as a volunteer in the church, maybe then I'll feel better about myself. And so oftentimes, we're driven to work for the Lord in an effort to lay down the burden, to have the weight removed. Aren't we? And so the first thing we're going to note here is this, that God is not impressed with my work. He wasn't impressed with Abraham's work. He is not impressed with my position, whether I'm serving as a volunteer on the greeting team or in the kids' building or pastoring the church. None of those things impress the Lord. It didn't work for Abraham, and it won't work for us. The Lord is not impressed with my work or the status of my position. All right, verse 9. Paul's going to bring up another thing that God is not impressed with. He asks this question, Is the blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We 
talked a few weeks ago about the background for the church in Rome, that uh, the, the church was started by Jewish Christians, probably coming from Jerusalem. Uh, there was a lot of uh, issues that surrounded the idea of uh, Jews who've now become Christians living in a Greco-Roman world, and there was persecution that happened, there was exile that happened. So there was a lot of, if you will, animosity that had been building between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so Paul is addressing these issues, and so he's asking a question now to highlight one of the primary issues that was happening in the church. So before we read any further, um, circumcision comes up. Okay, So if you don't know what that is, um, ask your parents. They'll explain it to you. Uh, unless you're over like 18 or 19, don't ask because it'll be awkward. Just look it up. But here's the point. It was an outward mark that the Jews had on their body to represent an inward faith and commitment. Okay? It's very similar to baptism in Christianity. There's nothing about the water itself that takes your sins away. It's an outward statement of an inward commitment and faith and life change that's happened. So for the Jews... These descendants of Abraham, they would bear that outward mark through circumcision. What was happening now in this uh, Christian church with the Jews there, uh, in some locations they were actually asking the Gentiles as grown adults to become circumcised in order to please the Lord because they grew up in that religious system. You can't please the Lord and not have the outward mark to bear it. He, he won't allow you into his presence unless this has taken place. And so, it, as you can imagine, it rises as a, as a major issue in the church. Now, here's what Paul is going next. So he says, he asked the question, is the blessing of Abraham just for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith, we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. He's saying the same thing again. He believed and was counted righteousness. Now, here he says, we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Verse 10 how then was it counted to him? How did it happen? So he's going to ask the question, at what point in Abraham's life did God account to him righteousness instead of counting his sins? There are a lot of monumental moments in Abraham's life. To begin with, when God speaks to him and says, get your family together, go to the land that I'm going to show you, Abraham got his family together and he went to the land that God was going to show him. He worked for the Lord. When God came to him and said, I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, up on the mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him, Abraham packed up his son and the firewood, and he headed up the mountain. God miraculously intervened in that story, but some huge moments in Abraham's life. So here it comes, verse 10. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? You can just even take that word out and put the word baptism in there. The Lord changed my life. Well, was it before or after you were baptized? Verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he... What tense is that next word? Past tense. Had by faith while... Or excuse me. Had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Very clearly, Paul wants to make this point. Circumcision wasn't what caused Abraham to be righteous before the Lord. That was just a mark. It was just a seal of something that had already taken place. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being what? Circumcised. So that righteousness would be counted to them as well. 
and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now, one of the things that, um, that the Jewish culture was struggling with and was guilty of, we are too. And we don't just do it with baptism. Um, we do it with uh, the, the outfits we wear on Sunday. Right? I mean, how many of you have heard the phrase church clothes? Right? And some of us grew up in systems where if you didn't wear your Sunday's best, God wasn't going to be happy with you. You're going to disappoint the Lord if there's something nicer in your closet. You have to wear your church clothes. I'll wrestle with that this week. Why do I take a shower and shave and dress up on Sunday mornings? And I realized this week, you know who I do that for? I do that for you, not for the Lord. Some of my most awakening, spiritual, deep moments with the Lord have been barefooted with a pair of gym shorts and a T-shirt on, on my face on the floor before the Lord. And it breaks my heart when I hear people who are outside the church say, I would come to church, but I don't have the right clothes. You know what they've just heard? I don't have the right outer appearance. Now, now some will say, well, because I love the Lord and because he's worthy of honor and respect, I want to wear my best for him. I'm good with that. As long as we don't think that that's somehow going to impress him, that he might give you more favor because you wore nicer clothes. I'm good with, out of a sense of respect and honor for the Lord, I'm going to wear something nice and I want to display outwardly what's going on on the inside. I, I have great respect and honor for the Lord. I'm good with that. As long as we don't buy into the lie that God has somehow unimpressed with you if you don't go out and buy a new outfit for Easter. You see, we do it in such subtle ways. And we do it with other things in our culture um, I'm good with, I encourage you to listen to godly music on your radio, listen to the, the radio stations in our, in our Metroplex community, but I'll say this, if somehow you think that God is impressed with you and you're going to have a better day simply because you tune into KLTY, you've already began to buy into the lie that God is somehow going to be impressed with the outer appearance. Now, listen to the music that stirs your affections for the Lord. If that's the station, fantastic. But just don't buy into a lie that God's going to be impressed with you if you do it. Or second thing, if you're taking notes, God is not impressed with my outer appearance. He's not. It goes to great lengths to tell us he is not a God who is impressed with outer appearance. Uh, going back to David, King David, I don't know if you realize this or not, but he was, a, he was a scrawny young teenager when the Lord first called him uh, to be the future king of Israel. And, uh, and he had other brothers who you might say were more qualified. They were older, had more physical stature, more experience than this little shepherd boy. But in 1 Samuel chapter 16, the Lord says this as the, the prophet Samuel is going through these older brothers, looking at the ones who might have a better appearance as a future king. Then looking on David, here's what, in verse, starting in verse 6, Here's what we read. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So he looks at an older brother of David, Eliab, and says, this has got to be the one. I mean, look at him. He's stout. He's, he's, he's easy to look at. He's, he looks like he has it all together. He's very articulate. He's intelligent. He looked at all the reasons why surely Eliab must be the next future king. Verse 7 says this, but the Lord said to Samuel, 
Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the what? The heart. And he's setting Samuel up to be able to not to look at little scrawny King David and not discard him quickly. God says, no, Samuel, I'm looking past what you see. I'm looking into the heart of the man. God is not impressed with our outer appearances. He's not. And again, we, we easily buy into that, don't we? What is, what is one, of the, one of the knee-jerk reactions to sin, even for the Christian, is what? To cover it up. I need to process this before I think about, I need to find a safe place. And so we'll process, we'll think, and we'll cover up, and we'll sit on sin for a long time, years sometimes, before we own those things before the Lord, before we confess those things before a brother or sister. What are we worried about? And most often in those cases, we're worried about the outer appearance, losing face. And so Paul brings it up and says, listen, This mark of outer appearance, is that what blessed Abraham? No, that was just a seal. It was a mark of something that was going on on the inside. He tells us that God's purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. Let's move down to verse 13. Paul's going to bring up another element of trying to impress the Lord. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So what Paul's going to bring up now is obedience to the law. We'll look in just a minute. Paul stood as an authority on obedience to the law. If anybody in the New Testament arguably had room to impress the Lord with his morality and his obedience to the law, Paul would even say, I did. If anybody had room to brag, to say, God wants me on his team because of my righteousness, my my morality, my obedience to the law, it's me. So this is what Paul's going to bring up next. For the promise of Abraham to his offspring that he would be heir to the world did not come through the law or his obedience to the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Verse 14. For if it's For if it is the adherents of the law who are the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Then why is faith even in the equation? And why did God even make a promise? What was the promise God made through Abraham? Abraham, I'm going to bless you and your descendants. And through your descendants, I'm going to bless the nations. Well, how is God going to bless the nations who aren't descendants of Abraham? The the promise doesn't make sense unless there's another way to get in. Right? Because not everybody can be a descendant, a blood descendant of Abraham. Not everybody has been circumcised at birth. He's already moved through this letter talking about not everybody has the law. This is what Jeff talked about last week. The Jews had the law. It didn't work for them, but they at least had the law of God. And now Paul's bringing it up again and saying this. Abraham wasn't considered righteous because of his obedience to the law. Look at what he goes on to say. Verse 15, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Confusing phrase. Um, Ideally, in context, what I think is being said here is going back to Romans chapter 3, the first one, where Paul asked the question, what advantage do the Jews have? And then he answers that by saying they had the oracles and the law of God, but here's the thing. It didn't help them any. 
And, and the way I look at that is though um, to enter into God's kingdom, I'm standing before a 10,000 foot cliff and this, that's not even tall enough, but I'm standing in front of something that is impossible for me to climb. And so what advantage do the Jews have? They get to bring a stepladder, right? Like you would think that would help, but in reality, right? Compared to where our unrighteousness to where we need to be righteous before the Lord, it's not gonna work. And now Paul brings up another point here. You would think the law would help us get closer to God, but it doesn't. It actually just amplifies the sin that's already there. So you could almost flip that verse around where he says, for where the law brings wrath, he says, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Another way to read that in context is this, that where the law is, transgression is amplified. It's more obvious. Verse 16, that is why it depends on faith. I'm going to look at uh, Philippians 3. If you want to turn there, I'm going to read a few verses. Um, if you've never read Paul um, rolling through his bio and kind of giving his testimony, um, this is a really powerful place to go, um, where Paul addresses the difference between counting on your morality and your works and your outer appearance, right? the difference between that and letting go of those things and chasing after Christ alone. Philippians 3, starting in verse 3. Paul says this, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in what? The flesh, in our works, in our, outer, in our appearances, in our ability to, uh, to, to impress God with our morality. We put no confidence in the flesh. Verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. It's a pretty bold statement, but let's listen to the bio. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, as to obeying God's law, a Pharisee, as to zeal for the Lord, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law. What does Paul say? blameless. I followed the law to a T. But then guess what he's going to say now? Wasn't enough. It's like bringing a stepladder to a 10,000 foot cliff. It wasn't enough. Verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What is he saying? I traded religion for a relationship. Look at what he says about religion. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Rubbish is, is the spiritual word for uh, manure or um, septic waste. Every advantage I have by being obedient, I was circumcised, I was super religious, zealous for the Lord. I didn't count that as a blessing. I counted that as rubbish compared to this relationship I have by faith. Look at where he goes next in Philippians 3. In order that I might gain Christ, verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul is saying in Philippians 3, I have the blessing of Abraham. 
And I gained it the same way Abraham did, by believing the Lord. See, that's when Abraham was considered righteous, when the Lord spoke to him, made a promise to him. Before he even moved a foot, he believed God. Then out of his belief came what? Works. Did he always get it right? Nope. Go read Genesis, the rest of the story. He's going to get it wrong oftentimes. So he wasn't counted righteous because of his good works. His effort to please the Lord came out of his faith, his trust of the Lord to deliver what the Lord had promised. God is not impressed with my morality. God is not impressed with my morality. God is never impressed with your moral good works. He's not. Now, what do we do as Christians then? We're going to get into the letter in more depth as we move forward. Then we just don't care about the law at all? We don't care about morality or godliness? Not at all. What we're going to read is this, is that when we truly, by faith, receive the grace, the riches of grace that God offers, it transforms us, gives us a new heart, and now all of a sudden we have a desire to pursue the law, a desire to pursue godliness, a desire to obey that wasn't there before. And every day through our successes and our failures, we're being conformed to the image of Christ. When we get it wrong, repentance. When we get it right, we don't boast. We say, this is God working in me. But we don't do these things to impress God. There's a difference there. I was, uh, uh, recently I was on a flight and I, I got sat next to a, um, a, a Jewish, a young, a young Jew from Israel. I spoke very good English. I'm thankful because my Hebrew is a little rough. And we started talking about the difference between Judaism and Christianity. And, and ultimately, I was just looking for opportunities to share the gospel with this, this young man. And at the end of the conversation, we got to the conversation on the difference between uh, righteousness by faith or righteousness by works. And I was explaining to him that you know, by believing, by trusting and believing in Christ, my sins are forgiven. And, and he was trying to explain to me that, well, that's the same thing in Judaism. There's a, there's a faith element to believing that God would forgive you. And so I said, well, give me an example. He said, well, at the first, the first 10 days of every year, um, what we do is this. We, uh, we spend 10 or 9 days racking through all the sins from the previous year. We either write them down or we log them in memory all the times that we fell the Lord. We meditate. We think. We move into this state of repentance. And then on the 10th day, we fast the whole day. And then at the end of the 10th day, we go before the Lord. We ask for forgiveness. And he said, by faith, we're forgiven. I said, well, I think the difference would be then between Christianity and what, how you're describing Judaism is this. See, on the first day, we can go before the Lord. And by faith, we can say, Lord, I've sinned. Please forgive me. And in that moment, he forgives us. And then our heart changes. And then we want to fast before the Lord. We want to spend time with the Lord. We want to erupt in worship. We don't do these things that we might be forgiven. We do them because we're forgiven. See, there's a difference there. That's what Paul's getting at here. He's not saying that the law is, is, is no longer something we should consider. The law reveals the character of God. That's, that's the character we're being transformed into. We must pay attention to the law. It shows us who God is. But we don't do the law to impress God. God is never impressed with my morality. Let's look at 16 and 17 together. That is why it depends on faith. It's a very strong word, depends. There's no other way. It depends. It's essential. It is critical that we pursue the Lord on faith. Because if you pursue the Lord any other way, 
He will not be impressed with you. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you, speaking of Abraham, a father of many nations in the presence of God to whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. The promise of Abraham is this. Here's the promise of Abraham. The promise of Abraham is to stand justified and right before the Lord. Not as an angry judge or a never satisfied boss or a parent who can't be pleased, but to be justified and stand right before the Lord as a loving father who is pleased with you. That is why we need the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ is given to us to set us free from trying to earn God's favor by working hard enough to try to earn God's favor by dressing up the outside to look religious enough or by striving to be perfectly moral, using the law as a checklist. We've been set free from that by faith. Matter of fact, uh, the author of Hebrews in chapter 11, a full chapter on faith, is where we read these instructions. And without faith, it is impossible to please him being God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Did you read that? Did you see in there any room for those who would draw near to God must make sure that they've done their checklist, checked everything off. They must make sure that they have on their Sunday best. They must make sure that, it, that for that day at least they've been perfectly moral. No. Those who draw near, near to the Lord must what? Must believe. Those who draw near to the Lord must believe that he exists and he rewards those who what? Impress them with their works? No. Those who seek after him. Faith in Christ is all that God requires in order to make me righteous. Faith in Christ is all that God requires in order to make me righteous, put me in right standing before the Lord. The finished work of Christ on the cross, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down, completely satisfies all that God requires of me. I think most of us believe that it partially satisfies. The, what Jesus did on the cross, I mean, it covers most of what I've done wrong, but there's a few things I need to work out myself, and I need to, I need to make right myself. That's not the gospel. The gospel says that the completed work of Christ on the cross satisfies completely everything God requires of you to stand in his presence. This is why Jesus said, come to me all who are tired and, and, and heavy laden. My, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come to me and I will give you rest. At the bottom of your uh, sermon notes, um, there's some questions for reflection. I'm going to read through those questions to wrap up our, our time here. I want to read uh, this statement and then and roll through these questions. What I hope we will do collectively is begin to take some inventory on our own lives. The good news of the gospel is that Christ has met all of God's expectations of you. Did you meet them? Nope. Did he have expectations? Yes. 
Christ has met all of God's requirements and expectations of you. Christ has paid your debt for sin and earned God's favor on your behalf. In Christ, you have a position in God's family. According to the gospel, you have that position. Some questions of self-inventory. Let's just ask these questions of ourselves. In what ways are you still trying to impress God with your work for him? Maybe it's church attendance or giving money or whatever it is, volunteering. In what ways are you still trying to impress God with your work for him? In what ways are you pursuing a position with God rather than pursuing a relationship with God? Some of us have bought into that lie. In what areas of your life are you still putting on the religious facade rather than walking in transparency and forgiveness? Now, in what ways do you feel disconnected from God because of your moral failure? Here's the last question. Are you willing to exchange working for God for walking with God? Are you and I willing to exchange working for God for walking with God? Spend time with the Lord in a quiet time because he's good. Because he's met all the requirements that you can do so. Open your Bible tomorrow morning, the beginning of your day. Pray and seek the Lord. Not because he'll be impressed with you and your day is going to go better, but because he's good and worthy of your time. Serve the Lord. Many of you are volunteering in positions all over the church. Serve the Lord. Not so that he'll be impressed with you, but do it because you're impressed with him. Do it out of the abundance of grace that he's given you. Serve the Lord because he's first been good to you. Let me pray for us. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up and uh, we'll continue to wrestle through these questions this week. Let's pray together. Um, Father, so thankful this morning that the gospel is a message that for many of us is too good to believe. And so you give us Abraham and you give us David as examples on how this works. Uh, Neither man was able to impress you morally, religiously, outward appearances, hard work, none of the things that David or Abraham did impressed you. And God, we see that in our own lives. Father, the good news of the gospel is that Christ has completed every good work on our behalf. And that by trusting him in faith, God, you set us free. You set us free from having to dress it up and pretend to be more moral than we are. You set us free from having to work harder to earn your favor. You set us free from trying to impress you with our morality. You set us free to chase after you. You set us free to seek you and to find you, to be transformed and to look more like you. So Father, now would you come? Would you expose this sin in our lives? God, that we might not make the gospel null and void but instead live a life that depends depends upon the grace we have through faith 
as our band begins to sing, we're going to stand and our prayer partners will be at the front and at the back if you'd like somebody to pray. I'm going to turn this time over to you to respond to the Lord.